to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, and this morning we come to verse 7, 8, and 9. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. And we want to consider this morning, this morning the silent and the stricken servant. As you know, Isaiah 53 is about the sufferings of the servant of the Lord. So, uh, verse 7, Isaiah 53, the prophet writes God's word, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And we'll stop there and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us. As we open your word, as we open the scriptures this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us these beautiful verses that are before us, which remind us of the sufferings of Jesus our Lord. Thank you for your word. May the Holy Spirit help us then to hear, to understand, to rejoice to delight in what the servant has done for us. So we ask your blessing now upon the preaching of your word and upon the hearing of your word. May Jesus be praised, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. I think now as we come to verses 7 through 9, we really come to what many consider this to be the heart of the passage. These verses are really getting to what this sacrifice, this atonement is all about. This is then at the center. And what we find significant in verses 7 through 9, that this is a passage about the responses of the servant. About how did the servant respond? How did the servant react? And we are, we are as we come face to face with Isaiah chapter 53... We come face to face with the realization that, that really in all the world, there is nothing that compares with the sacrifice that Jesus made. Oh, the Bible talks about those who lay down their lives and have done so for the sake of others. And even a good man, Jesus said, would, might even dare to die. But there is no death in all the world that compares to what Jesus our Lord did at the cross. And so there's nothing then, I say, in all the world to compare to our understanding this morning of this great subject that is before us about the servant. This is a passage, particularly 7 through 9, that stands at the top, at the very pinnacle of all biblical and theological reflection. If you were to narrow down Isaiah 53, you'd have to come to these verses. And you'd have to stop at these verses and, and ask yourself the question, why did he do that? 
Why did this servant respond the way that he did? What was it that caused him to be like that? And that's why I say when you reflect on these thoughts or you meditate on these things, this is at the highest peak of any theological or biblical reflection. In fact, I dare say if you think this morning of your own conversion, your own salvation, you would have to say ultimately that it is wrapped up in Isaiah 53. You don't have to go far anywhere in this passage to discover that the servant is blameless, guiltless, innocent, and that we, on the other hand, are the, those who are to be blamed, who are guilty, and who really are the condemned. This is a passage that conveys that all the way through. The great Puritan Joseph Aline, he said that conversion is a deep work it is a heart work. It's inside us. And he says that, that when God converts us, it goes through all the person, through his entire mind and through his entire heart, and it affects every aspect of his or her life. That's true, isn't it? That's what conversion is. It's an affecting of every part of who we are. That's why Matthew Henry could say, no conversion, no salvation. Because that's what conversion is. It's regeneration. It's salvation. And Stephen Charnock reminds us that conversion is a spiritual change. A spiritual motion. Regeneration takes a hold of the heart. Changes it. And does a sovereign work in us. God, the Holy Spirit. And so to understand my conversion, your conversion, we, we, don't, we help ourselves when we consider a passage like Isaiah 53. This is a passage then that is rooted in what happened to the servant. And by extension, of course, we know that the servant is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. So that what happened to the servant is what happened to Jesus. And why did it happen to Jesus? It happened to Jesus because of you and because of me. Now remember, we started this great passage back in chapter 52 because that's where the song, the fourth servant song begins. In verse 13, chapter 52, we consider the servant as someone who sprinkles and who startles. And how does he do that? Well, the prophet conveys to us his exaltation and then the prophet conveys his humiliation. And how can you have in this one person humiliation and exaltation? How does that work together? And so it is the, the bringing together of the, the glories of the servant and the degradation of the servant that causes the nations and the many and the kings of those nations to be startled by such an activity. So that's what we started with. But then we, we moved on into chapter 53 verses 1 through 3 where we considered together the despised and rejected servant. And why was he despised? And why was he rejected? It was because no one believed. He was just cast off as it were. He was despised of men, rejected of men. They did not consider him to be worthy of salvation or achieving any kind of salvation. And then you remember last week, verses 4 through 6, we considered the piercing or the pierced and crushed servant. And that was just a, a reflection on the vicarious sufferings of the servant on our behalf. But now we discover something different in verses 7 through 9. The servant is silent. 
and the servant is said to be stricken. So this is not so much about what happened to the servant, but really this is about the servant's response to what happened to him. So this is about how does the servant react, how does the servant respond. That's what verses 7, 8, and 9 are. They're about the servant responding to the sufferings that are inflicted upon him. They are a reaction to them. How does he react? How does he respond? You know, if we could answer how, maybe then we could go on to ask the question, why? How did he respond And then why did he respond in such a way? Why did the servant react in this way as verses 7 through 9? I mean, look for example at verse 7. It says that he is described like a lamb led to the slaughter. Now you know any study of the Bible is going to soon bring you enough into confrontation with lambs and their sacrifice. You can't get far in reading the Bible before you come across a lamb that is killed. So for example, you read, don't you, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4, that that young man Abel, he brought, the Bible says, of the firstborn of the flock, and he offered it to God as a sacrifice for himself, and God was pleased, you remember, with Abel's sacrifice. On the other hand, you had Cain the brother, the elder brother of Abel, and he wanted nothing to do with a lamb. He brought the very best of the ground, of the fruit of the ground, and God said, that's not what I require. God had no regard for Cain. But for the lamb that Abel brought, God had all the time in the world it brought pleasure to him, because that's what God expected and required, a lamb to be sacrificed. Abel's lamb was Abel's substitute. That this is what Abel should be doing. Abel should be slain. Abel should die. But instead a lamb, an innocent, blameless lamb is given. The firstborn of the flock. And it's accepted on his behalf. You don't get too far in Genesis before God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your monogonese son, your one and only son, your beloved son, and get to a mountain that I will show you. And I want you there, Abraham, to take him and offer him as a sacrifice to me. It was a test, wasn't it? And do you remember how Abraham and Isaac are going up there to the mountain and Isaac is looking around and he says, My father, we have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife, but we lack the lamb. Where is the lamb? And do you remember uh, Abraham's response, God Himself will provide a lamb. God will provide the burnt offering, the sacrifice. Israel is in bondage in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. And what is the one thing that will save them and deliver them on that violent night when the firstborn in all of Egypt is destroyed? It is, are you under the blood, the Passover lamb? And those thousands and thousands of lambs are killed Passover night. And the blood is sprinkled on the doorposts and on the lintel. And if you're under the blood in the house, you're safe when the destroying angel comes through Egypt. You see, you need sacrifice. You need blood to be safe. You need blood to be shed. And this is the the paradigm of Scripture, isn't it? This is what you find all throughout Scripture. Sacrifice. Think of the Old Testament sacrifices that the book of Leviticus prescribes. 
It is to kill lambs and goats and bulls and over and over again you shed their blood. And all of those the Bible will tell us are just simply types and shadows and copies. They're not the real thing. They point to the real sacrifice, to the real giving of life, redemption. And so all of those Old Testament sacrifices are substitutes for Israel. And all the lamb sacrifices simply point to the one perfect single sacrifice made by Jesus for all time. A sacrifice of atonement. You never really hear much about atonement. Or perhaps we never really think deeply enough about atonement. That very word does not occur often in our Bibles. But the idea of what it conveys is that it is an idea of propitiation, of satisfaction, of expiation. Something in your stead that turns away the wrath of God, that turns away the condemnation of God, and brings deliverance, and brings salvation, and brings freedom. And so we remind ourselves every time we think of lambs, think of them in the, in the Bible, of sacrifice. And so when John the Baptist points out, there is Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. How does He do that? By His sacrifice, by His death. And so, in order to worship God, like you have done this morning, we all recognize that to worship God, you have to come by way of sacrifice. And I ask you this morning, what is your sacrifice? Well, it was Jesus, originally, and true now, it is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we bring to God on the basis of what Jesus did for us. But we always come to offer something to God. And if you want to worship God truly, then you come by way of offering sacrifice. The right sacrifice. The sacrifice that Jesus made. We talk about the shedding of blood, don't we? We mean violence done to achieve the shedding of blood. Violence to the lambs, violence to the bulls, violence to the goats, violence to the servant to shed his blood, to pour out his life's blood so that we might live. And we call that shedding of blood redemption. You read about that in him we have redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins, Ephesians and Colossians. So that the shedding of blood brings forgiveness. The sacrifice brings forgiveness, brings healing. And I don't know of anything more glorious in all the world than the forgiveness of my sins. Do you? That God actually forgives you, forgives me, on the basis of a sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago. This is what Isaiah the prophet is conveying to us. That here is one who undergoes such awful suffering. And we realize that He undergoes them for us. That's why Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said, Not all the blood on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. Only the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, can wash away your stain and my stain. Now the interesting thing about Isaiah 53 is that this is the first time in the Old Testament that the actual sacrifice is an actual person. This is the first time we, can, we get the idea that this is a person here who sacrifices, who lays down his life as a redemption, 
as an atonement, in the place of others, as a substitute, as a penal offering to God for the penalty of my sins and your sins. And we've discovered all the way through chapter 52 and chapter 53, those pronouns, right? He, 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 meaning the servant. This is what he, the servant, did. He fulfills the function of a sacrificial animal. He takes that place. And so as we, we've thought about the servant, our hearts and minds, because of what we know from Scripture, automatically transfer to the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant. And it is the servant in chapter 53 who makes sacrifice, not by offering a lamb himself, but by offering himself as the lamb. So that the servant is the sacrifice. He does not bring any sacrifice like a lamb for himself. He has no need to offer sacrifice. He is innocent, blameless, pure, holy. So he offers himself as the only substitute that God will accept on our behalf. This is conversion. This is the gospel. This is the cross work of Jesus. All of these ideas center around us. Your very existence as a Christian is because of what Jesus did. My existence because of Christ. Even the Lord's Supper does not let us get far from remembering the death of Jesus and what He did for us. And that death of the servant is a death of substitution. In my place. In your place. It's a voluntary substitution. It's a vicarious sacrifice. It's on behalf of others. When I use that word voluntary, what do I mean by that? I mean it's a willingness, isn't it? To, to allow yourself to die. You know, we have a natural inclination to hold on to life. To resist death. To put death off. In fact, the longer we can delay death, the better we feel about ourselves. That's humanity. That's what we do. We do it naturally. It's like an instinct, this preservation of life. But to voluntarily, willingly, when it's not your fault, and you're innocent, and you're blameless, to die on behalf of others. That's really beyond understanding and beyond comprehension. When I say he is voluntary or he is willing, notice he does nothing. He says nothing in response to whatever is heaped upon him. He lets everything happen to him. So notice verse 7, right? Look at verse 7. You see it clearly. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Alright? What was his response to being oppressed and afflicted? Isaiah says, he opened not his mouth. Now you know, generally speaking, if we oppress somebody else or say something that's unkind to someone else, you might get a response. You might get a reaction. But when, when the servant is oppressed and when the servant is afflicted, the Bible says he opened not his mouth. He willingly bore this oppression. He makes no defense of himself. Now usually we would defend ourselves. If you're accused of something, you might defend yourself, whatever way, way it might be. But Isaiah pictures the servant as completely willing to die, to suffer. Like a sheep, he says, that's led to the slaughter. Like a lamb that goes to the slaughter. The interesting thing about sheep is that they follow, right? And usually sometimes farmers might introduce what they call the black sheep. And the black sheep goes in front of the other sheep and he leads the way to slaughter. 
And as he goes up the rank, ramp, the black sheep deviates and goes down the side, and all the other sheep go up and are slaughtered. And the black sheep comes around again, gets the next batch, and up the ramps they go, and he, the black sheep deviates, and the lambs and the sheep all go to perish and to be slaughtered. That's the servant, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. This servant goes willingly, willingly to death. It's, it's a compliance with death in absolute silence. Because he goes to death silently, doesn't he? In fact, you notice how the text says, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. So here you have a willing submission, and you have a silent submission. And verse 7 again closes with that twice phrase, he opened not his mouth. No response. Just led off to die. Just taken away to die. No response, no objection, no defense. Verse 7 says he was oppressed. That word oppression should raise within your mind pictures of the taskmaster in Egypt who lays strokes upon the backs of the Israelites to make them work harder and work longer and work more. It's blow after blow after blow. The, the taskmaster's work is to oppress is to bring about violence, physical brutality, to torture, whatever it is, to get the work done. And that's what the taskmasters in Egypt did. And here comes the servant, and he is oppressed, under a taskmaster, as it were. And he takes it, like a sheep, like a lamb, willing to be slaughtered, willing to be sheared. He was afflicted, that means he suffered abuse, he suffered reviling. While all of this was happening to him, you remember Jesus, how he, he stands before Pilate, Pontius Pilate and his accusers, and he answers not a word. They're all accusing him from every side. You said this and you said that. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Are you the Christ? You can't be the Christ. And they're just accusing him of all kinds of things, and he answered not a word. He's silent before them. If someone is to accuse you and me of something, you might rise up in defense and say a word. Or somebody else might rise up in your defense and say a word on your behalf. But Jesus has no one. He has a disciple who's out there by the fire. And when he is asked, you are one of his disciples, that disciple said, I don't know the man. I never heard of him. What support does the, does the Son of God have as he stands before his accusers? Nothing. Just violent abuse is heaped upon him. When he was reviled, remember how Peter put it, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return. But he took the suffering willingly. And so instead of retaliation, this marvelous servant bears all the reviling and hatred of man that can be poured upon him. To emphasize the response of the servant, notice twice in verse 7, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Every time you see something like that twice, it's a stress. That's the response of the servant. He opened not his mouth. Sheep were willing to be slaughtered. Sheep are willing to be sheared. And when they are willing to be slaughtered, the servant offers no response, 
Just silence. When he is willing to be sheared like a lamb or a sheep willing to be sheared, he offers no resistance. He just offers submission. So here are these two ideas that when the servant is heaped upon with all of this abuse, two responses, silent and submissive. He just bears it. And so here he is, no reviling, no retaliation, no resistance by the son, by the servant. Now you know for the prophet, for Isaiah, that's amazing. That's just beyond his comprehension. That someone should bear all of that and say nothing and do nothing. He was amazed by that. In fact, we know that Pontius Pilate, Matthew 27 says, that he was greatly amazed at the silence of Jesus. Because here are all these accusers. And Roman law says you can make a defense. Roman law says it's the right of every man to be able to defend himself. And Jesus says nothing. Silent. Silent. And Pilate is amazed at that. And I think this is, this is the prophet Isaiah. How can the servant be silent in the face of such suffering? And then to add to it, he goes into verse 8, doesn't he? You look at verse 8 and it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? What is that verse about? That is a verse that, is, that talks about the servant being led away like a sheep to death. Led away to death. He is hated, he is judged, he is condemned. Now, dear congregation, what you and I need to understand when we come to this passage is that whilst the servant is judged by men, the real judgment is God. It's judgment. It's not man's judgment. That's the issue here. It's what did God do to his servant? What did God do in response to this violence done to his servant? It is God who actually gives the servant into the hands of the wicked, the unrighteous. It's God who hands him over. It's God who stands back. It's God who lets it all happen to the servant. Notice the language. He was taken away, led away to death. But there's also the sense that he was taken away by death. He's cut off in the midst of, of living. He's cut off by death itself. And so verse nine, uh, sorry, verse 8 suggests that he was cut off out of the land of the living. In the midst of his suffering, death came and snatched him and took him. Do you remember those two thieves on the cross uh, on either side of Jesus? They were still living. Jesus had died. Jesus had, had uh, dismissed his spirit, bowed his head first, dismissed his spirit, which is the complete opposite of how men die. Okay? Men don't do that. They don't dismiss their spirit and then their head falls. Their head falls first and then they're gone. So no, Jesus here is gone. Jesus is dead on the cross. But those thieves are alive and they, they desire to break the legs of the living to hasten death. Because the next day, of course, was the Sabbath and so on. But here, in the midst of his life, in the midst of the sorrows, in the midst of the suffering, cut off. It was time to die. And he dies. 
This verb to be cut off has the suggestion, somebody has said, of an unbroken, unremitting record of violence done. You see, we don't talk like this, right? We don't talk about violence and, and abuse and oppression and judgments. Not our language. But it is the language of the Bible. And it's the language of the Bible about Jesus. And it ought to be my language about what happened at the cross. This is what happened at the cross. To be cut off is to be removed. To be taken away. To be, to be cut off from life. And notice the responses, by the way, because there are people looking at Jesus, right, when He died. Notice their responses. It says, as for his generation, who considered? Who considered that he was cut off? Nobody, nobody even cared when he died. He died and he was gone. That generation did not care. That generation was not concerned. They did not consider. Not one person for one moment grasped or understood Psalm 22. That was happening to the servant of Isaiah 53. Not one. Not one person said, no, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This fulfills Psalm 22. This fulfills Isaiah 53. Not one person considered when he was cut off. It's as if Jesus alone dies as a substitute for me. And nobody's thinking about that. Nobody's concerned about that. And we ask if that's the first thing that we notice this generation who didn't respond, well then what really happened to the servant? Notice the end of verse 8. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Where did that come from? My people. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. When Isaiah uses the phrase, my people, he means God's people. He now means that here is the servant of the Lord under the judgment of God himself and why is that because of the transgression of the people my people God says now Isaiah might certainly be reflecting I think also on the fact that these are his people these are Isaiah's people you remember how Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord in his glory high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and so on his response was to say, Woe is me, for I am undone, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm just like them. My lips are unclean. I'm guilty. Maybe Isaiah was thinking about that. The point of the passage is, the servant was stricken. Stricken because of transgressions. Notice verse 7, he was silent. Verse 8, he was stricken. So what does all that mean when you put it together? Here is a willing submission. Here is a voluntary act to suffer death for the sins or the transgressions of people who are called my people. To be cut off from the land of the living for my people's sake. For their transgressions. God says my people's transgressions. If you go to the end of verse 12, you see the same idea, right? He bore the sin of many. Who were the many? He makes intercession for the transgressors. Those are the many. Those are my people. Now ask yourself this question. What is a transgression? What are transgressions? Well, the simple answer is that they are simple, simply willing rebellions. Willing, willful rebellion against God. If you look at verse 5, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
pierced for our willing rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our moral evil. So this is including all acts, both internal, external, all thoughts, all actions, all of it, our willful rebellion against God, manifesting itself in iniquities, practicing evil. That's all of us. That's every one of us. That's you. That's me. We're all guilty of willful rebellion against God. That's what Adam did in the garden, and every one of us since have been doing the same. The servant comes along, and he says, their punishment, all of them, I take for myself, upon myself. So he takes the punishment for the transgressions. That's, me, that's what it means to be stricken. He was struck. You notice in verse 4, he was smitten of God. It was God who did this to him. That is why Psalm 22, 1, you have what you have. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Think of the intimate fellowship in the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No more at the cross. Cut off. Silent. When the, when the Son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No response by God. None. You're alone. You're, you're bearing sin. You are under judgment. You are under condemnation. God can have no fellowship with that until atonement is made. So the servant takes the punishment. To be smitten, you know, is to be struck, isn't it? Blow after blow after blow. Think of the sufferings of Jesus. They blindfolded Jesus, you know. And then they smote him on the head and said, Prophesy, if you're the Christ, because if you're Messiah, you'll know exactly who's striking you. That's why they put the blindfold on. Prophesy, tell us, who struck you? It's not so much the smiting of men that's the issue, but the smiting of God. Why was he smitten by God? For the transgressions of my people. For your transgressions, for my transgressions. And the thing about the servant, right, is that he's not guilty. I'm guilty. There's not even an ounce of guilt in the servant, but in me it's 100% to the brim and overflowing guilt under condemnation. Uh, the servant is stricken for us, for our guilt. So verse 7 and verse 8 in simple language are just describing the death of the servant. He died. He was cut off. He was taken away. He's no longer in the land of the living. He, this is his death. But if he died, what happens after death? Well, we usually bury people, right? So that's verse 9. Notice verse 9 says, that they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So here we discover that the servant has died and there's been no objection by him to dying, no resistance by him to his death, but a willing submission to die. But now he must be buried. He's in the hands of others. And how do you, how do you bury the wicked? Because that's how they see someone crucified on a cross. You must be guilty, you must be a criminal to die on a cross. That's the ultimate death in Rome, to be crucified. You must be the worst of the worst. There are two thieves on either side of Jesus. And so you would expect that, that criminals are going to receive death, a burial at the hands of the wicked. But we discover here that that actually doesn't take place. It's a rich man who buries him. He's buried with the rich. Death on a cross for wicked criminals, but burial, which is supposed to be just for the criminals, is not 
for the servant. There's like an intervention here. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich. You know, I remember six years ago, uh, visiting the Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. It's the best tour I have ever been on. It was the touring of a political prison where Protestant prisoners were held for their violence and Roman Catholic prisoners were held for their violence. Some of them had committed murder and taken the lives of others and so they, they were executed there in the jail. And that was such a shocking experience to me because for one month before the execution takes place, the, the, the guards, the wardens actually come and spend time in the prisoner's cell. There, he has books, he has all the food he needs to eat. But when you go into his bathroom, there you see the bathtub and then the wall moves across and behind the wall is a noose. And it's a shocking experience when you see that for the first time. He goes from comfort, he goes from eating his food to the hangman's noose and they drop him and he's dead. But the worst of all is that they then take him down because he's down below and they put him into a coffin that exists right there and they take that coffin out within the walls and the confines of the prison to a little earthen field and they put him in the field and they cover him over and there's no gravestone and there's no marker. It's as if he's forgotten forever. And I stood there on the grass and thought about all the dead underneath me. Who are they? They're the wicked. They're the criminals. No name. Nothing to commend them. And so here comes our Lord Jesus Christ and you would have expected because someone died on a cross that therefore you bury them wherever you bury the wicked. But no. It doesn't happen that way. Here comes the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, and tenderly he takes the body of Jesus down. And then Nicodemus comes, you remember, who came to Jesus by night. He comes with 75 pounds of incense and spice. And they wrap up the body of Jesus. And then Joseph and Nicodemus bury him in, Nicod in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. A rich man's tomb. You see, Isaiah 53 is completely fulfilled in the death of Jesus. You can't get away from it, right? Why is Jesus given an honorable burial with the rich? Because he's innocent. It's as if God says, not for the wicked because he's done that at the cross, but now in his burial he is buried in honor, it would appear, with a rich man because he's guiltless. There is no violence in him, the text says. There's no deceit in his mouth. You know what Isaiah is doing here? He's simply pointing out in verse 9 that the awful death of the innocent servant is vindicated by his burial. And it's a burial really ultimately by God himself. He did no sin. Notice the text. Verse 9. No violence. Outwardly, no violence. He had no sin. Inwardly, no deceit. So here's a description of what the servant was like. He has nothing outwardly and he has nothing inwardly that brings guilt. He's guiltless. He's blameless. He's like an Old Testament lamb that's innocent, that's undefiled, that's blameless. There's no wickedness from his hands and there's no wickedness in his heart. We often talk about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Calvin says that here is the perfect, innocent sufferer 
Savior who never offended ever in deed or in word. And he's dead and he's buried. The perfect Savior. Your Savior. My Savior. In other words, the perfect Savior makes the perfect sacrifice. The only sacrifice God will accept on your behalf and on my behalf. Isn't Paul right? He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is Jesus, silent before his accusers, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a lamb to be sheared, struck by the blows of God's unrelenting judgment upon him. Why? My transgressions. You know, you can't get away, you and me, from Isaiah 53. You can't stand far off and say, well, the servant, that's the servant. No, you're there. The transgressions of my people, you're there. I'm there. We're all there. We can't avoid the cross of Jesus. Why did he suffer? Why was he submissive? Why was he silent? For my transgressions. Wounded for my transgressions. By his condemnation, I go free. As uncondemned. Oh, what a glorious thought, right? How can you escape Isaiah 53 by saying this is not Jesus? Well, who is it then? Who, do, who will you come up with? Search all of human history. Who will you put in there? There's not one person that fits Jesus like Jesus fits Isaiah 53. Come up with the best hum, human being who's ever lived apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? They're sinful. But here's one who's sinless. There is nobody else who fits the servant like our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's true, what should your response be and my response be? Surely it should be, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And if it is, thank you. And if it is, yes, I believe you did that for me, Lord. Yes, it is, I believe you suffered and died in my place. If that's your response, then surely... The life that now must be lived is a life of love, a life of joy, a life of service. Isn't that what conversion brings? Transformation, change, sins paid for, the guilt, the penalty assuaged. Jesus says you go free. I stand in your place. I don't know of any better freedom than that. You can win freedom through political means. You can fight for it all you like. But there is no freedom like this freedom. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from condemnation. Free in Christ. You can't, you can't, how can we really understand that? Doesn't conversion bring joy to your heart? It did to mine. I mean, my conversion uh, goes back 50, 53 years, 52 years now. I remember it as clear as anything. I was filled with such joy that Jesus died for me and saved me. Not just died theoretically, but what He did, He did for me. And I believed. And I knew forgiveness. And I knew cleansing. And I knew love. What it was. And I knew joy. See, that's what conversion does. It's transformation. It's a changed life. One of the sad commentaries on the Christian church is that there are people who don't understand conversion who don't get what conversion is, who just continue to pander to themselves and go through life and really 
may talk about such things, but don't know such things. Do you know these things? You see, I want to know, have you fled to the cross? Have you gone to Jesus? Have you gone to the the cross and seen the servant? Have you done that? Have you rushed to him and said, I'm condemned because you died for my transgressions. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I cast myself upon your mercy and your righteousness, Jesus. Because only that can save me. I want to know, have you done that? Have you fled to Jesus? Have you come to Christ? If you've never come to Christ, come! If I could compel you by the scruff of your neck, I would. But I can't do that. That's the Spirit's work. May He convict us all of what Jesus did for us. Because Jesus did it because He loved us. And He gave Himself for us. That we might be saved and might be free. Ah, There's something about this, isn't there, that transcends what, what has existed in human history for years and years. Freedom. This is real freedom. Spiritual freedom. Not physical freedom. Spiritual freedom. Ah, Your cancer might not go away. Sorry to say. Your diseases might not leave you. Sorry to say. But I know what does leave. Your guilt. And your sin. And your condemnation. You're set free by Jesus. Isn't that salvation? See, this is a great thing, isn't it? This is what the, the prophet is getting to right. As he dives deeper and deeper into the servant. He started with his humble beginnings. And he's worked his way into the life of the servant and he has come now to the servant at the end, facing death. How will he respond? We've seen how he responds. Silent, even though he is stricken for my transgressions. Calvin would tell us, you need to consider your transgressions And then you need to, he would say, relish the grace of God in Christ. Relish, taste it. Taste Jesus and his death. See what he did. And then say, I believe, Lord. I believe you substituted yourself for me because I was condemned and instead you were condemned for me. You bore my wrath. You bore my penalty. You bore my punishment. That's the gospel. right? That's Isaiah 53 from beginning to end. That's what it's all about. Do you know it? Because that's what is going to give you life. Spiritual life. Eternal life. And give you Christ above all things. Joy. Love. Service. I give myself to you, Lord, sincerely. It was Calvin's motto. My heart, I give it to you, undivided, sincerely and completely. Take it. That's the sacrifice we make ourselves. We give Jesus everything because he gave everything for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these glorious truths that are before us in Isaiah 53. How our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of Yahweh, submitted himself to the violence of men, to the hatred of man, that he willingly, silently stood before them 
and bore all their insults. And yet that was nothing in comparison to the cross when he bore the wrath of God for us. Let us not escape this, Father. Let us not put off thinking about this, but let us embrace this and thank you for giving your Son. It pleased you, as the rest of Isaiah says, to crush him, to bruise him for our sakes. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, you who are the Son of God, who came into this world to redeem, to give your life as a ransom for sinners. Thank you for taking our place. We cast ourselves upon you. Thank you for the cross where you died. So thank you, Father, for giving your Son, and thank you for giving your Holy Spirit, that convicts, who convicts us and works in us and works regeneration and brings about conversion, brings about salvation. May we know the joy and the peace of sins forgiven this morning, every single one of us. May we recommit ourselves to living in the light of these glorious truths. May we rejoice in them. May you fill us with hope, fill us with the forgiveness of sins, with the joy of that, and with the peace that exists between you and ourselves. So thank you for your word, and now we commit ourselves to you and pray that we might humble ourselves in your presence and believe your word. We ask these things in the holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.